Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 through 13. I don't know how many of you are into running or jogging or how many of you made it your new resolution to go running. Uh, I have a friend who, when it comes to jogging, likes to quote Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 8 that says, the wicked run when no one is chasing them. The Bible often speaks of the walk of faith. We think of people who walked with God. We read that Noah walked with God and Enoch walked with God. But one of the primary metaphors that is used of the walk of faith is in fact not a walk but a run. The Bible consistently uses the images of a battle or a wrestling match or of the Christian faith being a long distance run. The Apostle Paul must have been a bit of a jogger uh, because he often uses uh, the picture of a race in his letters. And the anonymous writer to the Hebrews must have also gone for the occasional run because he or she uh, also picks up on this idea of the Christian life as being a long-distance run. Nobody actually knows who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, uh, but it is my hope and my affectionate belief that it was Priscilla who we're introduced to in the book of Acts along with her husband Aquila. This is a couple who are Paul's traveling companions and fellow workers. And Priscilla seems to have been the stronger character because whenever they're mentioned, Priscilla is always named first. But anyway, that's just a complete sidetrack. The writer to the Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you've forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons for what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. And this is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. In these verses, the writer describes at least five things that we are to do if we're to run a good race. And firstly, if I want to run this Christian race well, I'm going to need the encouragement of others. The writer begins this passage by saying, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And if you're familiar with the book, you'll know that in the previous chapter, chapter 11, the writer gives a whole long list of heroes and heroines of the faith. People like Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Samson, David, Samuel, who, as he says, through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. It's very important to remember that he also speaks of others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. Don't let anyone ever tell you that if you have enough faith, you can live above the trials and tribulations of life. No, all of these people were commended for their faith. All of them lived by faith. Some had the faith to endure, and some had the faith that were overcame. But now then, in chapter 12, when the writer speaks about this great cloud of witnesses, he's speaking about these people. Not so much about them looking at us, although they may well be, but rather at us looking at them. That These men and women are meant to be an example and an encouragement to us. Growth in the Christian life never takes place in isolation. We cannot grow on our own. We're not designed to grow on our own. Every now and again, someone says to me, no, I, I just have church by myself. My, my faith is, is very private and personal. But God designed us to grow in community. How else are you going to learn patience? Not by yourself, it's as you bump up against other Christians. So I really want to encourage you in this new year to get connected, not just to this big group, but it's always better in, in smaller groups as well to join one of our Bible study groups where you can study God's Word and share your life and share your concerns and your prayer needs. Uh, to come together on our Friday morning prayer meetings which start in a couple of weeks. Or even just to start a small group of your own. Uh, even meeting up regularly with one friend to chat about God's Word and pray together. Verse 12 is actually a quotation from Isaiah 35. When the writer says, strengthen the feeble hands, he's not calling on us to do that for ourselves, but rather to do it for others. The full quotation is from Isaiah 35, where the writer says, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the needs that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come, he will come to save you. So in, in this new year, let's commit ourselves to encouraging one another and building one another up as in fact we are doing. 
If we're going to run well this year, we're going to need the help and encouragement of others, and we need to be an encouragement and help to others too. Secondly, if I want to run well this year, then I need to put off everything that trips me up. And in verse 2, the writer speaks about two things that can trip us up. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. The writer speaks firstly about the unnecessary, everything that hinders. I need to get rid of things that are unnecessary. A normal running marathon is covered in just over two hours nowadays, but at the 2002 London Marathon, one competitor made a world record, not for the fastest time, but for the slowest time ever. Lloyd Scott of Essex completed the marathon in five days, eight hours, 29 minutes, and 46 seconds. Why was that? Well, he completed the course dressed in a full old-fashioned diving suit, including that huge copper helmet and weighted boots. No wonder it took him five days. It would have taken me five weeks. Now, let me ask the question, was all that gear necessary for the marathon? No, of course not. Lloyd Scott was raising money for charity to combat cancer. But some of us run the Christian race and we wonder why we don't make much spiritual progress and the reason is actually simple, we're carrying too much weight. A weight is something that's not necessarily wrong, it's just not necessary. And a weight can be all kinds of things, it could be a relationship, it could be an expectation, it could be an activity, it could be a club. It could be a memory that you refuse to let go of. It could be a fear. It could be a job. It could be a hobby. For many of us, the heaviest weight that we carry is our cell phone. <laughs> I was just reading this last week. You know, if I spend one hour a day looking at my phone this year, over the year it will add up to 15 days of my year. And if I spend two hours a day on my cell phone, it adds up to 30 days. That's an entire month of this year that will be taken up with my cell phone. Now, none of those things are necessarily wrong, but they may be unnecessary and they may keep us from growing spiritually. How much more couldn't I do with 30 days of my life this year? The writer here says that we're to let go of things that are unnecessary. And so just think for a moment, what, what are some of the things that I need to let go of in order to spend more time with God? What are some of the things that are preventing me from running this Christian race well? Secondly, in terms of things that trip, trip me up, the writer speaks about the ungodly, not just the unnecessary, but the un ungodly, the sin that so easily entangles. Those of you who are athletics fans uh, will know that the greatest race in the world is the 100-meter sprint. That's the top race. 
And some of us who are older will remember the great moment at the 1988 Olympic Games when Ben Johnson broke the 100-meter sprint record. It hadn't been done in decades. He finished the race in 9.79 seconds. But just 72 hours later, the Olympic officials walked into Ben Johnson's changing room and took away his gold medal. He'd tested positive for taking steroids and so was disqualified. It's a huge scandal. I remember reading up about Ben Johnson recently and I discovered that after those games he returned to athletics, but in 1993 he was found guilty again of taking drugs and the International Amateur Athletics Federation banned him for life. And today he lives in Toronto, his income is a few hundred dollars a month and he's still training for races that he will never run. He was tripped up by the ungodly. And folk, we know the things that trip us up. I'm glad the writer speaks about the sin that so easily entangles, because it does easily entangle us. But it's important to see sin in its proper light. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts that God arbitrarily lays on us. These are things that trip us up, prevent us from reaching our full potential, Prevent us from becoming the men and women that God calls us to be in Christ and that God created us to be in Christ. And so the writer says we need to let go of the sin that so easily entangles. Thirdly, if I want to run well this year, I'll, I'll need some perseverance. The writer says in verse 1, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. It's not always easy to run this Christian race. In the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City, Jonathan Stephen Aquari of Tanzania finished the marathon over an hour after the winner had entered the stadium. In fact, everyone else had finished long ago and even some of the spectators had gone home. But he finally entered the Olympic Stadium uh, at the end. Uh, pain hobbled his every step. Uh, his leg was bloody and bandaged. And as he finally limped across the finishing line, the small crowd roared out its appreciation. Afterwards, he was interviewed by a reporter who asked him, why didn't you just retire from the race? You knew you weren't going to win. Aquarius seemed confused by the question, and finally he answered, my country did not send me to Mexico City to start the race. They sent me to finish. That's a great quote. <laughs> In the Christian race, God is far more interested in how we finish than how we begin. Maybe sin has entangled you. Maybe you've messed up and you feel like you've done so, spect so spectacularly that there's no hope. But it's not over. It's not over until the day we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And he promises that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are so many testimonies, even here in this room, of how God has turned even the worst failures into good. We might not be able to go back, but we can go forward with a fresh commitment to love and serve him. 
There's a wonderful promise in the book of Revelation where Jesus says to us, to the one who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. And so let's keep on going. Don't give up. Let's keep on doing those daily disciplines of meeting with God in his word, praying to him, worshipping him. Let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fourthly, if I want to run well this year, I'll need a single-minded focus. Verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. One of the reasons I enjoy talking about the Christian life as a race and all of these illustrations from running is because when I was in high school, I was quite a good athlete. Uh, my favorite distances were middle and long distance. Uh, you don't know this. For many years, you've been completely unaware of the fact that you are listening to the champion of the Queen's High School cross-country marathon, 1988 and 1989. <laughs> One of my favorite races uh, was the 1,500 meter race. It's a very clever race because it's uh, just longer, well, much longer than a sprint, but it's an intellectually challenging race for reasons that I'll go into in a moment. But I remember one year in particular, my main rival, Brian Jardine, had won that race two years in a row. And earlier on in the day, he'd beaten me in the 800 meters. And now he was the favorite for the 1,500 meter race. And we all set off running. And in fact, Brian led that race all the way. I, sp I stayed a little bit behind him around second or third place. And I just kept a steady pace all through the race until the last 200 meters. In a long distance race, you need to reserve some energy for the end. And you always have to make a break. But you have to be careful. If you break too early, then you run out of energy at the end. But if you break too late, then all the other athletes get in before you. Well, on that last 200 meters, Brian was out the front looking good, and I started to speed up. And as I sped up, Brian also made his break. But then he made a fateful error. Instead of focusing his energy and his attention on the finishing line, he turned back to see where I was. And as he turned, he was in just in time to have the very best view of me flying past him <laughs> and finishing ahead of him. Uh, that moment will always be impressed on my mind. The writer says we're to fix our eyes on the finishing line, on the goal, on our Lord Jesus Christ. He has to be our focus. And for two reasons, at least, Firstly, when I fix my eyes on Jesus, it transforms legalism into love. You see, if Jesus isn't our clear focus, then everything else we've looked at today just degenerates into mere legalism or self-help. We start off this year and we think, well, this year I'll have a daily quiet time and I'll give up some things that trip me up and I'll spend less time watching television and I'll exercise more and I'll go to church more and I'll start a Bible study. And it fizzles out because the focus is on the activities rather than on the person. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we see how wonderful he is, 
when we see how wise he is, when we look at his sacrifice for us on the cross, and we realize that that is something momentous and beautiful, then and only then will we want to spend time with him, reading his word and praying. Then automatically we want to leave things that spoil our time with him. We'll want to work on things that are pleasing to him. We want to keep Jesus in mind throughout the day, inviting him into every area of our lives. It's only when our focus is on him that we'll even want to run the race at all. And so this year I want to encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus, to spend time in the Gospels reading about this remarkable man, watching love in action, his love for you. But secondly, we fix our eyes on Jesus because it gives us courage and hope and encouragement. The writer says in verse 2, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus has already won the race for us, and his victory is credited to us as our victory. And he's busy working in us to bring us to glory too. I remind myself that whatever I might be going through at present, Jesus has already been through that ahead of me. He understands everything that I go through from the inside of my experience. In fact, he's gone through far worse than I will ever go through. And I set him before me as my example. Verse 3. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then finally, if I want to run well this year, I'm going to need to trust my father. The Christian life is actually jolly difficult. It involves blood, toil, sweat, and tears. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And perhaps when those difficulties arise, it's easy to complain and think, why me? We can easily resent the things that are happening to us, or we wonder whether God loves us. And that's what the writer addresses in verses 5 to 11. You've forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Now these verses are an entire sermon on their own and we've run out of time to look at them in detail. But, but just notice a couple of things. The writer is speaking to Christians who are starting to begin to suffer for their faith and who in the future will suffer to the point of death. They're experiencing the hardship of living in a sinful world facing the powers of evil, battling their own sinfulness, being persecuted by sinful people. But notice the writer doesn't say, well, you're going to experience this hardship at the hands of others, and afterwards God will turn that into good. No, he says, right now, two things are going on at the same time. On the one hand, you're experiencing hardship and difficulty at the hands of wicked people. These things do not originate with God. And simultaneously, God is disciplining you. 
Not the discipline of punishment, Christ has taken our punishment on the cross, but the discipline of a father with his children, teaching, training, growing. In other words, God is so powerful that he's using the actions of sinful people, the work of spiritual forces, the consequences of living in a fallen world, even your own sin, and he's using that for good in your lives. You see, when, when Adam and Eve sinned and brought evil into the world, God had two choices. Either he could have removed sin and evil altogether immediately, which also would have moved, uh, involved removing Adam and Eve, wiping out everything and starting again, or he could have done what he did, and that is to allow sin and evil to continue and yet to so overrule sin and evil that he uses it to bring about his good purpose. You see that in the life of Joseph, for example, sold into slavery, falsely accused, imprisoned, and yet at the end of it he can say to his brothers, you intended this for evil, but God used it for good. And supremely we see that on the cross of Christ, that this human evil and demonic forces join together to kill the Son of God and yet all that they do is bring about the salvation of the world and their own ultimate downfall. And all that means then is that whatever struggles we're going through right now and whatever struggles we will go through this year, God is in control of them. Does he send them? Is he the author of them? No. Is he in control of them? Will he use them for good? Most assuredly. And what is the good that God intends? Well, verse 10. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. You see, God is not interested in our happiness. He's interested in our holiness. Look at the words in this verse, our good, our holiness, our peace, our righteousness. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 8 and says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. We have God's own word then, that whatever we may go through this year, even the difficult things will be used by God for our good and ultimately will make us look more like Jesus. In this new year that lies ahead, I can fully trust my Father. Some of you may remember watching the men's 400 meters at the Olympic Games in Barcelona in 1992. The British athlete Derek Redmond took off like a bullet and he kept the lead for two-thirds of the race when suddenly he heard a pop. His right hamstring had snapped. And he pulled up lame immediately, looking as if he'd been shot. Uh, he began to hop on one leg and eventually he just fell to the ground. The other lead uh, runners streaked across the finish line with Steve Lewis of the United States winning the race. But then Derek got up and ever so slowly and carefully he started hobbling down the track. He wanted to finish. 
And suddenly a man vaulted over the railing next to the track, dodged a security guard, dodged another security guard, ran out to Derek with these two security guards running after him, shouting, that's my son, and I'm going to help him. And he did. 120 meters from the end, Derek's father took him in his arms, and together, arm in arm, father and son struggled towards the finish line. Just a few steps from the end, Derek's father let him go so that Derek could cross the finish line by himself with 65,000 people cheering, clapping, and crying. As we've seen in this passage, God is with us, God is for us, God loves us, he's always there for us to lean on. As the Apostle Jude puts it, he is able to keep us from falling and present us before his glorious presence, faultless and with great joy. And at the end of the race, on the finishing line, he will look at you and me and applaud and say, well done, good and faithful servant.